The Deviation Podcast. Welcome to the Deviation Podcast. I am so excited to say that today, Sim Gill is with me, and he has been Salt Lake County's district attorney since 2010. He was actually the first Indian-born district attorney elected in the country. Um, At the age of 10, him and his family immigrated to the U.S., and Sim has a bachelor's degree in history and philosophy, and after that, he received his JD degree and certificate of specialization in, in environmental and natural resources law. That is a mouthful. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's been busy. <laughs> it is, it is. But it's, it's been fun. Good. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, I want to start from the beginning. Sure. Where did, will, will you start? In India with me. Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to come and just uh, chat with you and share some thoughts with you. So I appreciate the privilege. Um, Yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, my history sort of begins. I was born in India. My father emigrated here in 1969. Um, Then the rest of the family, we came two years later in 1971. Uh, We ended up here in Salt Lake City in Utah because my uncle was already, who had come a few years earlier than my father, had emigrated here. He was getting his engineering degree. And so my dad came out here because that's where his brother was. And... uh, and in, the, in those days, uh, early 70s, 1971, it was a very different uh, world, if you will. And uh, it was also a very different for me as growing up in India, coming into this uh, great country called America. And, uh, and I have to confess that if you, when you're an immigrant, you literally have these grandiose visions of what America is. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, you think about... Just not just opportunity, but literally, you know, you thought that uh, there was money on trees and you could, <laughs> and streets were paved with gold and and there was nothing ever going to go wrong because that was sort of like a little slice of heaven in the world. And once you made it there, everything was going to be easy. So that is something that uh, every immigrant has in one fashion or another. Uh, it's a place where you can come down and uh, there's an incredible sense of uh, uh, opportunity, freedom and that your life will forever be altered. And uh, and that, I, think, I still believe, is true for all the immigrants who are coming to this country because they really do look upon this nation as this land of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, and we were no different. Uh, we came down here. Uh, my father, who was a, uh, a college-educated person, his first job was working as a janitor. Uh, he, uh, you know, my mom uh, came down here. We came here. Uh, uh, she worked at a fast food drive-in. Uh, they, they both eventually retired from the state of Utah uh, in the from the tax commission and the finance department, respectively. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, my brother and I, we emigrated here and. Uh, 
a few years later after one of my uncles passed away, we adopted my sister. So there's three of us uh, all together. And uh, education was a very critical part uh, of the uh, idea of coming to this country. And, uh, and, you know, we came here and worked just like any other immigrant family. We were not rich. Uh, uh, we didn't have uh, money. Uh, but uh, what we had was uh, opportunity. And, uh, and so uh, worked hard. Education, as I said, was a core critical uh, belief. There was no doubt in our family that uh, we were all going to graduate from high school, but we were, and we were going to go to college. And uh, and once we got to college, we were going to get uh, professional degrees. That was sort of driven in in our mindset. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, and I came here about the age of ten, so I still have quite vivid memories of India. Uh, I can speak Hindi, Hindi, Urdu, and Punjabi and English. Uh, and so, uh, you know, my brother and I, uh, my younger brother, who also uh, came here, we always kind of laugh. We call ourselves uh, hybrids. Uh, we were, uh, we still, at least certainly for me, we're too much of an Indian to be an American, but too much of an American to be an Indian. So we grew up with this culture, uh, with one foot in both both cultures, if you will. And uh, and uh, you know. Uh, uh, and I guess we're living the American dream. You know, I, I got a, I went, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I went to and got a law degree. My brother's a successful head and neck surgeon, uh, a physician, and uh, my sister is married and uh, ha- and has a, a, a several young children. And uh, so, um, you know, when they talk about the American dream, I guess they're talking about people like us. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, before we go too far into yeah. that, I want to back up a little bit. So... What was it like growing up in India? Yeah, you know, it was it was kind of interesting. Um, you know, uh, India is a huge country. Most people, I don't think, fully appreciate how big it is. Uh, it, it is close to, if not first, or it's it's close to the largest population in the world, if not second only to China. Uh, depending on who you talk to, uh, there are probably more than a hundred sub dialects. Probably. Again, who you talk to, 20-some-plus separate languages uh, there. It is a huge, vast country. Um, There is incredible uh, poverty there. Uh, It's the largest free country in the world in terms of uh, uh, the largest democracy. Uh, We were part of uh, the British Empire, part of their colony. It became uh, liberated uh, or claimed its independence in 1947. Uh, And at that time, what was India... Uh, half of it, a big section of it, not half, a big section of it was broken into and created simultaneously the country of Pakistan. Uh, so if you ever watch the movie Gandhi, you'll notice that there are there's that long line of migration of people because there are Indians who are leaving what would become Pakistan to go to India, uh, and there are people who are Muslims in India who are moving and migrating to, uh, to go into Pakistan. So it's a diverse country uh, culturally. Um, and, and we grew up, you know, we grew up uh, relatively uh, middle class uh, in India. Um, uh, my father uh, did well. Uh, our family did well. Uh, but wealth is relative in India, you know. Uh, but uh, there were college-educated folks. Uh, uh, my uncles had businesses. Uh, so uh, when we were in India, we certainly had what I would say a very... 
comfortable life, uh, uh, relatively speaking to the level of poverty that is uh, witnessed there uh, by many people and experienced by many people. Um, is comfort uh, there similar to comfort in America? Or? Uh, well, no, it's it's different, right? Uh, it's a different life, at least in, in, in you know, I'm talking the 1960s, uh, mid-60s. Um, you know, India, India is fascinating. Um, uh, you know, w- when we think about it in the present sense, it is certainly... Um, there are a lot more millionaires in India than probably any other country because of uh, the technology and the trade and the liberalization that's occurred, uh, uh, given the number of people who are there. Uh, there's certainly a huge emphasis on um, education and, and success. Uh, even though the government historically has passed, there's no caste system, uh, there is a certain hierarchy. There's a hierarchy in terms of uh, the amount of wealth that you do have, um, Certain gives you certain privileges, both in terms of education and opportunity. And, uh, and that was certainly pervasive uh, during the 1960s and early 70s. Um, the sort of the broad economic expansion that uh, that now culturally defines India uh, really didn't happen till the basically the last decade um, and uh, and when there was the change in governments that liberalized the economic policy uh, and opened up the uh, the Indian economy to the rest of the world in a way uh, that it had never been opened up so there's greater opportunity in India and now than it's ever been, but so is the the gap in wealth. So if you think about a country that might have, what, 1.2, 1.3 billion people, uh, the middle class in India is probably over 300, you know, 300 million people, which is the entire population of the United States of America. So that's the emerging middle class. But by the same token, you also have a disproportionately large poverty class as well. So... Um, India in those days was really, um, I I hate to say it, and this is my, and people may disagree with me, and that's okay. Certainly my recollection of it is that uh, certainly in the 1960s, if you were born into a good family in terms of wealth or position, you obviously did much better. Uh, Opportunities came a lot more easier to you. Um, and, uh, And even then, as a young boy, I have some vivid memories of uh, incredible poverty that I've witnessed and uh, incredible uh, uh, injustices that I witnessed. Uh, You know, I sometimes talk about it, you know. Uh, I think that we are a sum of our experiences. As we go through life, there are certain pivotal experiences that we have uh, that kind of sit out as these uh, influences on us. And for me, you know, I've talked about it uh, before. For me, one of those moments was, uh, you know, I remember as a little boy, my father had already emigrated here, and we were living with my uncle, uh, awaiting our line to get the paperwork done and to see if we were going to emigrate to the U.S. How old uh, you I, was, I was about 10 years of age. Okay. Uh, and uh, I remember that there was this, uh, uh, you know, guy who would come and clean uh, our house, my uncle's house, um, and then he would clean the neighbor's house and so forth. He was this elderly guy who was really a wonderful guy, and I loved him. He was always very kind to me. And one day there was this just big ruckus outside, big noise, and uh, and uh, so we went outside into the street, into this uh, area, uh, courtyard area, and the one of the neighbor's house had uh, some jewelry that had come up missing. So they had, of course, immediately uh, um, 
suspected this poor guy of being the thief. And the memory that I have is that uh, there were about three or four police officers, and uh, and they had these long bamboo sticks, and they were just wailing on this uh, guy, and he was kind of curled up into a ball, and um, and you know, and, and and I remember him uh, just sort of sitting there. Um, uh, begging for, you know, professing his innocence, begging them to stop, um, uh, and uh, and then sort of then confessing to everything uh, to make them stop. And I remember asking my uncle, I said, what's going on? He said, well, a crime's been committed. And uh, and I go, well, what, what, why are they beating them? Why didn't they, they're, they're, they? He said, they're trying to get and gather evidence uh, so they can hold the right person accountable. Uh, and uh, and then you fast forward, as I said, so he, he uh, he professed his innocent. He begged them to stop, and then he confessed. And fast forward about three or four months later, when they really sort of sifted through it, they found out that he had never really stolen anything, and that left a huge impression on me uh, as a little boy. Uh, and uh, and something like that, which is very alien to the Western mindset in this country. Um, you know, that was something normal. That was something uh, not. Um, uh, out of the ordinary, if you will, um, and uh, and that interaction um, gives you a microcosm of uh, if you were the wrong type of person, if you uh, had wealth uh, and the institutions of power, how they related and how they exercised. Now, look, every the in, uh, everybody has a right, and you shouldn't be subject to this kind of thing, but. What's written on a document and how it's actually practiced in a community is fundamentally different, and so so it left a huge impression on me, and it captures a sense of uh, India at that time, um, uh, and uh, and and the, one of the lessons that I took away from it is that uh, um, if you have power, you also have a responsibility. Uh, and sometimes I've said that the best political education that I've ever received was that I was born in a third world country because I've witnessed what poverty uh, feels like. Uh, I know what injustice does to the soul of an individual and what corruption does to the, uh, the character of a community. And, uh, and that impression has never left me. Uh, and, and, and when we come to, when somebody like me comes to a country like this, where there is so much opportunity uh, and there is so much uh, uh, our public institutions uh, and, and they're uh, theoretically there to serve our community, um, that experience has never left me. Uh, and, uh, and so it informs uh, the way I look at uh, public service, I look at the opportunity in this country, the, I looked at, uh, look at the checks and balances that, uh, that we have, and the, uh, the, the hallmark of American society really is the, the reverence and respect to, uh, uh, in, in, to individual uh, dignity and the rights that you have. So, so you know, th- those are the kind of memories that I have. I also have wonderful childhood memories. I have wonderful childhood memories of my grandfather, who was very well-to-do as a businessman. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I remember that there was a pushcart vendor with a with a street cart, and and uh, and he was watching all the kids while our moms and aunts were all out. There was about ten or twelve of us children uh, being rowdy. 
And I remember him just stopping the street cart and telling the vendor to leave it in front of our house, and we ate our fill, you know? Uh, you know, uh, you know. I have those memories. I have memories of uh, my father's side of the family was uh, agrarian farmers. My mother's side of the family were business folks. Uh, I remember going to the village. Uh, you know, uh, most people don't realize, you know, people think of India as these big cities, and there are huge cities, and they're diverse. Uh, you know, it probably also is a, city, a country which has probably 300,000 villages. Uh, and and some of those villages, uh, uh, life ha- had not changed for 200 years. Uh, you know, I'm talking about villages where at night they didn't have power and you had kerosene lamps that uh, that lit uh, night, you know. Uh, and uh, and I remember as a little child going to uh, my grandfather's, my other, my, on my father's side, uh, to the village and, uh, uh, you know, and it, it's a physical structure uh, which now has developed quite a bit. But in those days, all the houses are sort of uh, built together. There's little alleyways and so forth, and all the people live there. And in the daytime, they go out into the fields to work. So those those kind of memories are very different from the kind of memories that most people, I think, nowadays have. Um, I also remember um, being a little boy, leaving the big city, going into the village uh, because uh, there was a conflict between India and Pakistan. And I remember uh, f- uh, fighter jets going over the village and uh, dropping uh, bombs and, uh, and my grandmother taking us and pushing us uh, up against the wall inside the house. So if, in case the roof collapsed, that we would be leaning up against the wall. So, you know, I, I, I mean, those are my childhood memories, uh, you know. Uh, uh, I, uh, you know, uh, I also lived in, uh, uh, I was born in a city called Chandigarh, which was a beautiful city, which was uh, uh, originally planned by the French-Belgian uh, world-renowned uh, architect Cabousier, and Cabousier centrally planned that city. So it's a very modern, very beautiful city. So, I, you know, I experienced a wide range of uh, experiences growing up in India, but, um, but, but its impression has always always been very long and lasting on me, both from incredible, um, incredible spirit, entrepreneurship, uh, drive, passion, and determination in people as they're surviving, trying to survive, to abject poverty, um, uh, a class, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, the Indian constitution certainly uh, uh, got rid of the caste system, but certainly there was a, a group of people who were called the untouchables. Uh, there was an entire cultural um, uh, uh, discrimination uh, against this class of people who uh, who were looked upon, and and it was very hierarchical. Everybody kind of knew their station, so you can't be a witness to that kind of abject poverty and injustice and not be impacted by it. And uh, so those are my memories, you know, uh, and uh, from from my childhood, uh, um, you know. So. Uh, uh, I don't know if they're similar to anybody else's, but those were mine. They're a little different from mine. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean it. It makes sense based on based on who you are and what you stand for. It obviously comes from really deep. Yeah. How How long was your dad in the U.S. before you? 
came over. So he was he came here in '69, and okay. we came here in '71. So two years later, we okay. came here, and and my uncle came here in the mid mid to early '60s. Uh, you know, um, uh, as a uh, exchange student, and uh, and fell in love and got married, and uh, and then uh, my father wasn't really certain whether he wanted to come, so he said, "Why don't you come over here and see, uh, and I'll sponsor you." Oh, wow. And so that's how my father ended up, and then uh, we came two years later, uh, and to Utah of all places. Was your life different or? more difficult or anything like that with your dad being in the U.S.? And yeah, no, guys? yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, I mean, look, I mean, you're, you're a kid, so I'm sure the difficulty was much more harsher on my, uh, on my mother than, than me, uh, you know, uh, you know, Indians have big extended families, so, you know, living with my uncle was not uh, uh, seen as anything big or different, it was just there, and, uh, uh, and so, yeah, you know, um, uh, I remember I remember dropping my father off at the airport at New Delhi when I was a little boy, and he was going flying to the U.S. and uh, And I think to appease me, I still remember because at the at the airport they bought me a, a, a comic book which I kept, which is actually in a, a, for many years I, I kept it. It was a comic book, uh, an English comic book. And it uh, depicted American Indians, Native Americans, and so I was just absolutely intrigued by that. And uh, I, and I didn't know if uh, if there were going to be uh, American Indians with bows and arrows here as well. But certainly that was a reference point that I had at a, as a little boy, which was a comic book uh, in English. Uh, a gold key, I think, comic book, if I still remember. Uh, but yeah, it was you know it was uh, it was uh, you know it was difficult. But the Indians have extended families, so we we lived there, and then uh, like I said, we emigrated here in 61, uh, 71, 71. What was it? I know you shared with me some of what you thought America yeah. would be like. What was it like when you actually got here? It, it was really interesting. Uh, you know what most people don't realize that uh, from the day that I was born till I was um, literally ten and a half years of age, my hair was never cut, and so I had this long black hair that went down to my waist. And uh, and I remember. So this is keep in mind. This is 1971, uh, and I remember when I first came here. I actually cut my hair when we when we got here. But I remember having long hair, and that's how I actually met one of my early childhood friends. His name was Merritt Riordan, and uh, he came up to me. He goes, wow, he goes, you must be a hippie, right? Because, uh, and I didn't know what a hippie was. I just had long hair, right, uh, down to my waist. Uh, and uh, and uh, so, you know, it's definitely a culture shock, uh, uh, definitely uh, uh, a big adjustment, uh, I remember when we were uh, airborne and flying uh, to the States, I remember uh, in those days, I think the, the airline is still around. It was called Lufthansa, which is a German airline. Uh, and we flew on Lufthansa, and, uh, and they gave us an on-flight meal. And, and I, I still remember boiled carrots, and my God, I thought they were just so awful because they were, <laughs> there was no spice to them. There was no flavor to them. They were just sort of boiled cardboard. And, and, uh, and, and my, my entire body and my taste buds just revolted against that. And the only thing that kept me uh, 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 tolerated through the flight 
light was, uh, everybody understood the universal Coca-Cola, and so I drank a Coke on the flight, and that I remember that very, uh, very distinctly coming over here to the state. But you know, we came here. We uh, we uh, lived by the University of Utah. I went to Douglas Elementary School, uh, when, which is uh, uh, right there on 1300 East. Uh, um, went there. Uh, through the fourth through the sixth grade. Um, How was your English when you got here? Uh, my English was actually uh, very limited. Um, I can tell you, uh, this is all I knew how to say was, hi, my name is Simrajit Singh Gill. How are you? Thank you. I am doing fine. And that was the full extent of my English vocabulary. Uh, and so you could have called me anything you wanted. I was sort of like Latka from Taxi, from taxi because that was all I could say. And, and that's all I would repeat. Uh, and, uh, uh, but it was, it was an interesting experience. I, I remember I, I went to the fourth grade uh, at Douglas Elementary. And on the first day, I was in. Uh, I was going. To, excuse me. I was going to uh, a school. Went out to research. Uh, 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 recess. Went outside, and I got my butt kicked by a guy because I was just so very different. And uh, so that was my introduction to the American school system. Was uh, on first recess, uh, getting my butt kicked, and uh, uh, and uh, and so that was an interesting experience. Um, and I shouldn't admit this as a public prosecutor, but I did kick that kid's butt in sixth grade. I got even with him because so. <laughs> yeah. he was picking on my buddy, uh, David. And, uh, and, uh, and it was really interesting because he, he, uh, this kid uh, targeted me and bullied me and beat me up at my first recess in fourth grade. Uh, and to this day, I remember, uh, and uh, fast forward to sixth grade, I had this friend of mine. His name was David. David Tolman, actually, uh, and and David was an interesting kid and maybe a little uh, awkward. And uh, we went out to recess again, and this kid started picking up on, picking on him. And uh, and I remember I just turned around and punched him in the nose and then jumped on him. And uh, which is, by the way, folks, don't do this. Okay, I'm not condoning violence. <laughs> okay, uh, but I'm just uh, sharing a childhood memory. And my principal, um, Mr. Booth, who I still remember. Um, so I got called into the principal's office. Uh, again, very different times. Um, went into the principal's office, and uh, and I remember for the longest time sitting behind his desk, and he kind of leaned back in his chair, and he kind of just was quiet for a, which seemed like forever. And uh, and he and he then reached into his drawer, which I thought he was going to pull out a ruler or something and whack me or something, and pulled out a Jolly Rancher candy, handed it to me. He goes, so-and-so, I won't say the kid's name. He goes, because he, Mr. Booth was the person who came out to the recess on my first day, so he still remembered oh, okay. it. And so, uh, so uh, he came up, he goes, so that was so-and-so. I go, yes, sir. He goes, what happened? I go, he was picking on uh, David. And uh, he, goes, he goes, okay, I think this makes it even. <laughs> and send me, send me back to class, right? And uh, you know, so so junior high, uh, elementary school was there. I went to uh, went to uh, what was Valley Junior High School, which is the old Roland Hall on there on I think uh, on um, on Eighth South uh, uh, before you go up the hill. Uh, so I went there in seventh grade, uh, and then uh, when we were going to go to eighth grade, we moved out to Taylorsville Kearns area. So I went to Valley Junior High School, eighth and ninth grade. I went to Kearns High School, graduated from Kearns High School, and then eventually I went up to the University of Utah. 
And it's the things, it sounds like things started to smooth out after fourth grade. Yeah, well, you know, look, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I look, I, you know, I've talked about this before. I think that all of us are a history of experiences. Uh, and, uh, and, and no, it, was, it wasn't always easy. Um, uh, uh, I played sports throughout junior high school, so my outlet became uh, being uh, driven to play sports. So I played, uh, you know, I, was, I did track and field. I was on the wrestling team. I played football, uh, soccer, et cetera. Uh, and that was, that was sort of my stuff. And, you know, I got involved in, uh, in student government. Um, but uh, growing up in those days was not easy, as it's not easy now. Uh, I'm a dark-skinned uh, person. Um, you know, uh, 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 I have a, f- a funny-sounding name. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and when you're a kid, you notice those things because you notice those things uh, often uh, from adults. So, you know, there was some level of, of discrimination and uh, things that, uh, that would, which are, which again, like I said, color your experience, right? That childhood memory in India colors my experience. That first day in uh, fourth grade at Douglas Elementary colors my experience. Uh, I remember as a, in junior high school, in high school, I excelled in uh, uh, school and uh, uh, I was a I was a decent student. Uh, I always got good passing grades, um, and I excelled in sports. Uh, excelled in student government, um, and I I remember in high school uh, I was probably a junior or a senior in high school. Um, I remember asking this girl out for a date, and uh, and went down to her house. Uh, uh, to, she and I agreed. I thought she was just this really beautiful uh, young woman. So she so agreed uh, on the appointed date to pick her up at 7 o'clock. I remember going down and uh, knocking on the door, um, you know, those homes uh, uh, with a screen door. Uh, the door opened, and this uh, woman, elderly, matronly, elderly woman, looked at me, and she said, Yes, what do you want? I said, Oh, I'm here to pick up so-and-so. We... We're supposed to go out tonight. There was the silence, and uh, and she says, "Wait here." It doesn't open the screen door or anything, and I'm standing on the porch for what seems like forever. Right uh, And uh, and uh, and so after some time, this young woman who I was supposed to go out with uh, shows up to the, the door. She goes, "Oh, Sam." Uh, 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 I can't go out. Uh, and I go, and I'm gone in my head. Oh, was am I here on the wrong day, uh, at the wrong time? And I go, what do you mean? I thought I thought we said you were gonna. We were gonna isn't it tonight at seven o'clock? And she said, no, no, no. Uh, she goes, uh, my my mother does not want me to go out with your kind. Oh uh, my. So, so you know, so that's an experience. Uh, you know. Um, uh, and and I you know and, and I you know look I, I don't think my experience are any different than anybody else's. I, my my point is that we all have a legacy of experiences, and these experiences, uh, some more than others, uh, start to shape who we are. And uh, uh, by the same token, and I'm going well. What do you mean, my kind? You know, uh, I was the president of my high school. I was the captain of the football team. I was the captain of the track team. I was the captain of the wrestling team. So, uh, what 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 is my kind? You know, yeah. uh, that uh, that you're not supposed to go out with, and uh, you know, and uh, and that's you know, and that those were the times that you kind of grow up with, and and even nowadays, I think those issues are still prevalent. Uh, 
you know, uh, and it's really fascinating because, because you know, I'm sure that if people, if you listen closely to my, uh, you know, to my voice pattern, you can maybe pick up a slight, faint hint of an accent sometimes in the back there, right? But I sometimes have to really kind of stop and look, and I, ha- I literally have to go like this because I don't know how dark I am, right? Because in my mind's eye, you know, I, I mean, I'm just normal, right? And uh, and so I've I've sometimes uh, uh, said it this way. Uh, you don't feel the racism of somebody else's until you see the color of your skin through their eyes. And there are moments like that uh, where the intentional gaze of somebody's observation, uh, because you're not conscious of it, because you don't think of it that way, but the intentional gaze is something you do see. You see that gaze. And if you're a person of color in this country, um, there is that, uh, you know, um, uh, I remember, um, you know, um, when I was going to law school, um, uh, my wife, uh, Jamie, at that time, she and I were dating, so I got admitted to Lewis and Clark up in Portland. So I went a little bit earlier to go pick up, uh, you know, to get an uh, apartment. And it was raining outside, as it always does in, in Lewis and Clark, uh, in Portland. So I told her, why don't you jump out, go talk to the manager, big apartment complex, and I'm going to go park the car. And so she went inside, and they were having this open house of apartments. And then I parked the car, and I came back. And uh, uh, and uh, so uh, I walked in, and there were several people in this uh, open house apartment thing. And so I walked up, and, I, and so this manager, whoever this person was, came up. And I remember saying, I said, well, uh, I go, I'm, he goes, yeah, can I help you? I go, yeah, I'm looking for, um, you know, a two-bedroom uh, apartment. He goes, and he kind of looked, he goes, no, I, uh, we don't have any. We've rented them out. Uh, we're, we're done. And um, I go, well, I'll take a three-bedroom then. And no, that's gone too. And and it was funny because Jamie had already walked in, and she was kind of already there. And she knew that there was an apartment that was open. So, uh, you know, these are the kind of experiences that you uh, sort of experience that, uh, that, uh, that have an impact on you. But I also had very good experiences. I, I mean, I, I've, uh, I met, uh, I've met people through my childhood uh, who, who had an incredible influence. Uh, 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 Mrs. Jonas uh, from the sixth grade who taught me about the Greek mythology and uh, really got my passion about uh, history going. Uh, Mr. Crane in the, in the eighth grade uh, uh, who uh, really encouraged me to pursue law and uh, uh, whatnot. Uh, uh, my coaches who I had who taught me that I could do anything I wanted to do and achieve whatever I wanted to achieve. Uh, my childhood friends from Merritt, who I was the first kid I ever met, uh, to uh, to Chuck Griggs, who uh, passed away, but uh, who who also, you know, wonderful, hardworking folks. I grew up on the West Side, and I love the West Side because this, this was a group of people who were just incredible, hardworking uh, blue-collar workers who worked up in Kennecott, who worked by their hands and by their craft, and these were, and this is really where my sort of uh, ethic for public service really comes from, from all these different amalgamation of experiences. And growing up in Kearns was fantastic, which is which was just hardworking, 
folks who weren't rich and all they wanted to do was to provide for their families, um, believed in the American dream, uh, were trying to find their little sliver of the American dream and a little bit of that pie and uh, were doing everything they could to just sort of uh, make ends meet and, uh, and, and do good by their families. And that influence and th- that population th- that, uh, of those hardworking, uh, just blue-collar folks, uh, that never left, has never left me in terms of when I think about politics or when I think about public service, because at the end of the day, um, my family was no different than their families, and we were all just trying to get by, and we all had a dream, and we all were trying to just do good by our families and and live in a community where there was a, a sense of respect and dignity, and nobody had any illusions that they were going to be millionaires, but what they wanted to do was do good by their family and be a part of community, and that was a wonderful childhood. You know, uh, the other thing that uh, which is uh, kind of interesting that uh, I'll share with you. So my father uh, eventually started working with the state of Utah. And in those days, they used to appraise. They would have five years to appraise the net worth of the state of Utah. And they would go and appraise the physical struck the physical land of Utah. And, and as a result, he would have to often travel. Uh, so he would be gone Monday through uh, uh, Friday. Uh, and, uh, and they would go out in teams. And, uh, and in the summer times, um, uh, since dad would always be away, but summertime we were not in school, we would go to wherever dad was going. So my childhood uh, is uh, actually just sprinkled with memories of uh, spending summers in Kanab and St. George and East uh, in Delta, in Tokerville, in uh, Panguitch, uh, Fillmore, uh, Duchesne, you know, you name it, uh, small towns in Utah. And so I was very lucky that in the sense that uh, uh, that once you kind of got out of the big city, my childhood experience really has was an experience of living in the entire state of Utah in these small towns and uh, meeting all sorts of people. Uh, Dad would be gone during the day. My brother and I and my mom uh, would find the local swimming pool or local drive-in or whatever or the local park, and that's where we'd go and play as little kids. And I got to play with other kids from these small communities, meet these families from all these different communities. And and that gave me an experience about the American experience in a really fundamentally different way that I think most people don't get to experience, which was this small town, hardworking, very proud people in these little communities. And you saw both kindnesses and the strange looks, but the curiosity uh, of questioning. And uh, so in that sense, you know, that my experience experience has been fairly rich in that sense, right? Uh, and I really got to experience the American experience in that sense of the American people, if you will, and of the American culture, right? Uh, to this to still day, I remember as a little boy going for an ice cream cone at Delta, Utah in the middle of the summer, and boy, it, it, would get, it gets hot in the summer in, in Delta, <laughs> Utah. If, uh, you know, people who live in Delta, Utah will uh, say agree. 
and you, we would buy an ice cream cone, and before I could go from the drive-in back to the motel room where we were staying, it would melt in your hand, literally, because it's so hot, right? But to this day, I still remember as I'm walking down between the, uh, the sidewalk and the, and the curb and gutter, finding an Indian head penny right there in that gutter, right? Uh, or, or, or going into, or, or, or remembering St. George when literally there was one st- uh, stoplight in St. George, uh, right. Uh, right? And so, so you know, so I have I have wonderful memories, you know. So uh, you know that was sort of the the range of my experience. Which is, I mean, it it makes sense why you are who you are. I mean, because I think you could have. I, I recently interviewed someone. Um, who was born in, I believe he was born in Iraq Mm -hmm. and went through some experiences that I wouldn't have blamed him if he was just an angry individual, but he has a similar outlook to you in that he still believes in the American dream and there's been enough goodness in his life and there have been enough people supporting him and championing championing him, goodness, that's a hard word, um, that he's able to be similar to you in having this kind and wonderful outlook on life. I mean, it's just, it blows my mind. I didn't know all of that about you. I knew some of the basics (laughs) through the research I had done, but where you are today and who you are and what you stand for is, and I know it sounds corny, but it's really just that much more incredible Uh, knowing everything that you've experienced because you didn't have to go this route. You could have gone a different route, but... You know, Here. and well, I think, and I think that's the that's the thing, right? I think all of us have those that 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 history of experience, and I really believe it shapes us and it forms us and it informs us. So the question then really becomes, what do you want to do with it? Mm-hmm. And uh, and for me, um, being a public prosecutor uh, was a natural progression, consistent with what my uh, faith in. Uh, the ideals that represent this country, right? Justice, fairness, equality, and truth are not just mere words, but these are ideals that define us as a nation. These are ideals that uh, inform us. These are, you know, we can treat them as mere words. And that's why I think that I find it deeply fascinating because there's, you know, of recent years, there's this very anti-immigration sort of a mindset. This country was founded on uh, we all come from somewhere other than the the native peoples of this of this country we're all immigrants in some capacity and uh, and 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 it really has been that beacon upon a hill uh, uh, of what this country represent and the opportunity that presents itself uh, to people and the ideals uh, I think that we forget sometimes what the ideals this nation stands for um, and it, it is fascinating to me that we, who have lived here, um, who have the privilege of these ideals, uh, we take them uh, uh, for granted. But all those people who are coming here, they really believe in these ideals. And uh, and if you believe in these ideals, then I think uh, you can't help be, uh, but be shaped by them. So public prosecution was a natural sort of thing for me That as a result of it. I, I thought about going into the corporate world with my law degree. I thought at one time that's what I would do. Uh, but I guess in deep uh, heart of my heart, I always kind of knew that uh, given what my experiences were, that uh, um, 
being part of uh, government and part of uh, public service was something that was natural. Would you say that that was, like you said, a natural progression um, and culmination, you getting to where you Uh, are, or do you remember a particular moment where things just kind of clicked? Well, you know, look, uh, I think like like everybody who goes to college or goes to law school similarly uh, thinking that they want to pursue one thing over another. Um, you know, at that time, uh, my brother was going to medical school in George Washington University uh, uh, on the East Coast. I was on the West Coast going to law school at Lewis and Clark in Portland. And we decided we're going to try to get back to Utah, and we he, he made it as far as Colorado. I made it here all the way to Utah. Um, there wasn't much work initially. Uh, you know, I worked as a, uh, a law clerk at Layton City. I got my start there, and I was doing land condemnation for a road widening project. Uh, and uh, it just happened that Janine Eller, who was the prosecutor there, um, uh, was in the process of giving birth, so so I'm working in the as a law clerk in the in the library. Gary Crane, who's still the uh, uh, the uh, the city attorney at Layton, uh, came into the into the library and said, "Hey, I noticed that you uh, you work with the federal public defender's office in your third year in law school. You you interested in criminal law?" And I go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah I, th- I think I'd be interested in criminal law." And he doesn't say anything, and he walks away. And so I'm thinking, hey, cool, maybe I'll get to do some criminal work. And he's gone for about 45 minutes. He comes back and uh, says, gives me a stack of files. He goes, these are your pretrial con- uh, conferences for tomorrow, and uh, and the day after that you have your first jury trial. Oh and, 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 and that was my introduction to, uh, to uh, criminal practice and, and being a prosecutor. I took the file and uh, saw, saw, I go, okay, what do I do? Uh, I took the file, I walked across the parking lot to, the, the at that time, a wonderful judge. I, I, his name was uh, Roger K. Bean, Judge Bean out in Layton. I walked up to his, knocked, you know, went to his chambers, and I introduced myself, and I said, hi, I just wanted to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Sim Gill, and I'm working at the city attorney's office. Um, I've been handed a bunch of files, and I believe I have a jury trial in 48 hours in front of you. I just wanted to introduce myself to you. Um, I've never done a jury trial. I don't know what I'm doing, but I just wanted you to know who I was. <laughs> and, 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 and that's how it started. And, so I, and, and Judge Bean was very kind, and he took me into his sort of under his wing. I learned more in Judge Bean in six months while I was at Layton City uh, than I had in law school. Uh, I was commuting from Salt Lake City uh, out to Layton City. Uh, and so a job opening opened up here at the Salt Lake City Prosecutor's Office. I applied there. Um, and uh, and it's funny, you know, it's, it's ironic because, uh, it, and, and, and I'll tell you another funny story, because you, you can't control these things. Um, so I had also applied at the Legal Defender's Office. And there was a guy named John Hill, who was the executive director at that time. And he was on the hiring committee uh, for the city prosecutor's office. And John had called me in because I had made it almost to the legal department. He called me in. He said, listen, uh, I'm sorry I can't hire you, but I wanted to talk to you personally to tell you not to give up. And uh, I'm sure something will turn up. But we decided to hire a clerk who had been with us. 
but for that, I probably would have worked for the Legal Defender's Office. So I didn't get that job, but John happened to be on the hiring committee for the city prosecutor's office. So since I had met with him there, he gave the plug to Cheryl Luke, and I got hired as a line prosecutor for Salt Lake City. I worked with them for a little bit over a year, uh, then transitioned from there to the district attorney's office. Uh, I came here and worked with them, uh, started out at 2100 South with the misdemeanor section, went to the arson fraud unit, um, then went back to the civil side, uh, and I was doing uh, environmental crimes prosecution, actually. So it worked out great. Uh, I was one of the first prosecutors to do local environmental crimes prosecution. So I'd been out of law school for about five and a half years or so. Uh, um, and uh, and then Rocky Anderson one became the mayor of Salt Lake City. I got a cold call. Uh, I never met Rocky Anderson in my life. I got a cold call, uh, you know, call from him, and uh, and he said, uh, "Hey, I want to talk to you uh, about uh, uh, coming and working for me." And and it was really funny because I had actually written a letter uh, to Salt Lake City about an enforcement issue, uh, kind of a nasty letter. So when I first I answered the phone, he called me up, and he said, hey, uh, hi, this is Ross Anderson. I'm going, who the hell is Ross Anderson? And there was a pause. He goes, Rocky Anderson, you know, the new mayor of Salt Lake City, and he had not yet taken over. And, and I said, and, I, and immediately I thought he's calling because I sent this letter, this nasty letter to Salt Lake City <laughs> on this uh, enforcement issue uh, when I was on the civil side. And he goes, you know, I, I want to talk to you about uh, coming and working here. Can you come and meet me? I couldn't meet him that night. He goes, so the next day I was supposed to meet some other people from the city. So he said, come up and see me. He was in transition. And I had the most unorthodox interview of my life, uh, which is um, my background's in history and philosophy. And I met with Rocky in the library, and we discussed the meaning of life uh, and what ethics mean to us. And, and he and I talked for about an hour and a half philosophy and ethics. Um, I said, hey, uh, I've got to go to this meeting, Mayor. I'm sorry. He goes, here's my cell number. It gives me his cell number. I go away. I finish my meeting. I call him up, and he calls me up, and he goes, the job's yours. So he uh, he appointed me as the chief city prosecutor. I was about five years out of law school, and so I got appointed as the head of that office um, by him. What and, was going through your mind at that moment? Well, you know, I, I, I well, you know, I asked, you know, and you know, Rocky and I've been friends for years, and uh, and uh, and he was very very kind. I mean, I never met Rocky in my life. Uh, I had been a line prosecutor with the DA's office. I was doing some interesting work. And some people had mentioned to Rocky that there's this prosecutor, uh, um, you know, my interest in criminal justice reform, uh, the way I approach my cases. Um, and Rocky, to his credit, uh, just had heard about me and decided that he wanted to meet me and, as a result, offered me the job. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, as the head of that office, that's, um, that was in... Uh, uh, the that was the December of 1999. I got sworn in at the same time Rocky got sworn in as the mayor, uh, and I was there for 10 years so through his two terms and then Ralph Becker's term. And that's really when we, Rocky and I, and uh, we started to talk about criminal justice reform, and we started to talk about... Uh, 
mass incarceration. This was in 2000. Uh, we were talking about mass incarceration, mental illness. Uh, we were discussing the uh, the uh, uh, the criminalization, uh, the racial disparities that were going on. And that's really when we started to talk about restorative justice and innovative programs that were therapeutic justice-based. And Rocky just kind of gave me the green light and let me do whatever I wanted to do in terms of criminal justice reform. And to some extent, you know, as a prosecutor now, you know, I'm in my, I'm my third term. Uh, I just got elected in my third term as the Salt Lake County DA. But... I, I, I was uh, the first minority uh, city prosecutor that was uh, uh, appointed, um, and I started my this conversation about criminal justice reform at that time, uh, uh, and what now everybody talks about, mass incarceration, mental health court, uh, treatment, that was something we started the conversation in uh, 2000, 2001. And we were discussing harm reduction policies for drug addiction, and uh, and everybody kind of looked at us in a really strange way, like we were speaking some foreign language, which now everybody speaks. But uh, that really goes back to uh, sort of the privilege that Rocky gave me. And so I was the head of the largest municipal prosecutor's office for 10 years. And then I ran in 2006, uh, lost in a close election, decided to run again in 2010. Um, uh, and won in 2010, uh, and uh, and then uh, just recently won my third term, and uh, and so a lot of the stuff in terms of my criminal justice reform and those issues, those are informed to me by my life experiences, as well as what I think about government, and also because Rocky Anderson gave me a shot to be the city prosecutor uh, when he didn't have to. So I know you shared with me a little bit about why he gave you that shot, but would you go into a little bit more detail about what what were you doing that was so different that had you stand out? Well, you know, uh, I don't know. You know, that, you know, as we're speaking, there's an article on the wall there that uh, uh, that uh, Rebecca Walsh did, and uh, and and it was kind of interesting at that time uh, because I I was kind of a little flummoxed in the sense that. I didn't think I was doing anything unique or special. I, I just thought, and the way I've always approached my job is you just show up and do your job, uh, the duty of your office, you do, you do your job. And, uh, and, uh, and, I, and, and, I, and I teased at that time to Rebecca, and I still believe it, I, you know, we live in some really cynical times when just simply showing up and doing your job becomes something extraordinary. Uh, and uh, and so so what we what we were doing at that time the conversation that we started is we started to talk about mass incarceration we started to talk about uh, disproportional overrepresentation of minority uh, uh, communities in the criminal justice system we started to talk about the criminalization of status that is of mental illness um, yeah, you know I left the DA's office I helped start at that time the very first mental health court in the state of Utah. Uh, at that time. We also started to look at therapeutic justice and restorative justice principles. We created a series of very innovative uh, programs that uh, tried to transition people out of the criminal justice system. And we recognized, uh, at least at that time, I didn't fully appreciate it till later in life, uh, as I started to work on these issues, that uh, that there was a systemic uh, issue here when we talk about the criminal justice system, and uh, and you know and, and it's pretty um, disproportionate. You know, as I shared with you a little bit earlier before we started the the podcast, 
Uh, I have a hypothesis, and my hypothesis is that then, uh, over the last 24 years that I've developed, when public policymakers fail to address the issues of social justice, economic justice, political justice, public health, uh, education, um, uh, uh, jobs, these public policy deficits manifest themselves as crises in our community. And as a society, we have relied on law enforcement to be our crisis managers in our community. And an application of this crisis management, it has disproportionately impacted communities of color and communities of poverty, often, uh, often uh, 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 criminalizing status. And that was certainly true with the mentally ill. Uh, and so when we created the first mental health court, we said, instead of simply warehousing the mentally ill in our criminal justice system, what if we took a therapeutic approach? What if we actually got them access to services? What if we wrapped the services around them? And, uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, could we have better outcomes? And, um, and because, look, because if you think about it, statistically, 2 to 5% of our general population is mentally ill. Uh, but when you look at the most conservative studies, uh, uh, 17 to 21, 24% of the people in our jails are mentally ill. When you add to it co-occurring disorders of substance abuse with their mental illness, those numbers really jump up to like 60 or 70%. And, uh, and, and, and as a result of which, the largest mental health facility in the United States of America is the L.A. County Jail. Uh, you know, uh, the second largest is, depending on which study you look at, is Rikers Island. Third largest is Cook County, and you literally have to go to 14 or 15 before you get to a publicly funded, publicly accessible mental health facility. So as a result of that, we have uh, uh, criminalized a pub what is a public health issue, which is mental illness, and we are using uh, our criminal justice system to warehouse the mentally ill uh, as crisis managers. And so we said that that was the paradigm that we inherited. We said, instead of using jail as a mechanism of incarceration, what if we took that as an opportunity to actually get uh, access to medication? Could we have a better impact on it? And what the data reveals is that we were able to reduce people who are mentally ill, who if they did not participate in mental health court, the recidivism rate of the mentally ill is between 72 to 76 percent. But if they go to mental health court and we get them access to, to their medications and wrap those services around them, we drop that recidivism rate down to 19 to 22 percent. And uh, beyond just the quality of life and, and, and treating a human being with the level of dignity and respect that they deserve, you're actually actually giving, giving them a better quality of life. And, and, and we were able to demonstrate that uh, instead of doing crisis management, you really are creating a continuity of care. So you actually, which may seem counterintuitive, we would actually increase the amount of services they got while reducing net cost that we were spending on them. Because when you're doing crisis management, going to emergency, those are very expensive, right? So those were the kind of things that we started to lead out on. And, uh, and unfortunately, that hypothesis uh, uh, that I mentioned uh, has been uh, far too true. Uh, so now, fast forward to where we are uh, as the Salt Lake County DA. And so I look at our public institution, and I think we have a ethical uh, responsibility to address this challenge. This, my, my background is in history and philosophy, so I, I'm a systems guy. I like to think about it in systems way. And when you think about it, 
we're not getting a return on investment, right? When we think about the mass incarceration, we've gone from spending six to seven billion dollars in the mid nineteen, late nineteen seventies to early nineteen eighties to over seventy two billion dollars a year to just prop up our mass incarceration state. Uh, and uh, and I used to when I give speeches, I used to give this speech, and I used to say, "Look, our criminal justice system is broken." And many times people will say, "Our criminal justice system is broken." I stopped saying that. I don't believe our criminal justice system is broken. I think our criminal justice system is unfortunately very efficient and is actually achieving the ends that it was set out to do, which is to criminalize poverty, which is to disproportionately impact communities of color. Our criminal justice system is very efficient at, uh, at uh, disproportionately uh, taking people in our society that we don't want to... Uh, uh, they have to deal with uh, that uh, we dislike, and it's very efficient in its execution. As a result, uh, we've created uh, generational poverty. We've done generational uh, incarceration. And don't get me wrong, I'm a public prosecutor. Uh, if you do crime in our community and you're a risk to our community, if you murder and rape and uh, abuse children, uh, our goal is to aggressively prosecute you, throw away the key, and lock you away because you are a genuine risk to our community. But we can ill afford to now just simply treat people who we dislike because as a matter of social or political policy and incarcerate a whole cloth generations of people and not recognize what we're doing politically and what a social injustice it is. And from a pure business perspective, uh, the return on investment as a nation, we are on a, on, a, on, a, on a fast track to bankruptcy with the expenditures that we're doing. And the return on investment is, well, because you could say, well, Sam, people out there commit crimes and they ought to be locked up. Well, the return on investment is that majority of the people will be behind bars within 36 months of their release. Uh, and uh, so we're not even getting a return on investment. So we have to change our way the criminal justice system responds, and that's right now a status quo response. And we also need to start embracing policy and having larger conversations about how are we systemically failing to address that issue. Uh, and, and, and sometimes that's talking about har harsh truths that nobody wants to talk about, right? That's about talking about uh, and recognizing. We have a race a racism problem in this country. We have a, a generational poverty problem in this community in this country. We have a, a problem with the uh, and I don't care which side you're on the equation you are. We have an incredible level of distrust between uh, communities that are impacted and their institutions of power, whether it's in a political sense or a prosecutor's office. Um, and 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 we can ill afford as a nation to continue to perpetuate this distrust and to expand the abyss of alienation for our citizens. If we as public institutions and public servants are going to have any value, we need to go back to the first principles and recognize that at the end of the day, this office does not belong to me. It belongs to the community of citizens who give me the privilege by their vote and elect me into this position to represent them. And, and we need to go back to a public service model. There's a lot of lip service that our elected politicians and policymakers make and give when it comes to the idea of public service. But it becomes 
a political posturing issue. Uh, it's not a exercise of that responsibility. Uh, you know, you and I were talking about earlier what I call um, the what I see the state of our politics, and the state of our politics are that I think that when we seek elected office, I have politicians who want the right to get to the podium, and they want to get to the podium, and they want to, because they say to the citizens, I have something to say. In fact, I will, I will champion your voice for you, and let me have the right to get to the podium, because I will utter that uh, truth in your name and in your, be, uh, in your behalf. So they get elected, and instead of actually taking ownership behind the podium, and then owning that space, and taking responsibility, and be accountable for the assertions that you're going to make, or not make, they start to simply guard the podium. They don't want to get behind the podium, but they don't want anybody else to get to the podium either. And that really, unfortunately, is the feeling that many people have when we think about our government and our institutions. And so for us as the Salt Lake County District Attorney's Office, and for me as a public prosecutor, it has been, how do I bring a measure of justice, fairness, equality, and truth to this institution which at the end of the day is there to serve the community of our citizens, and they are the ultimate gatekeepers and the ultimate bosses, not me, not my political office, and not the accident in time and history because I just happened to get elected to it. And I think that really is sort of the, the macro challenge about it. Uh, and, and if we can start electing people who genuinely know what their responsibility is to this community of citizens, maybe we can start uh, retrieving a sense of uh, honor that our public and the privilege that our public institutions give us. So, and that's the way I've kind of approached criminal justice reform. That's the way I've uh, approached uh, elected office. And then that, that opens up a wide variety of things for us to think about. Do you ever get overwhelmed? Because it's such, I mean, I love everything that you're talking about, and that's that's a big reason why I wanted to interview you in the first place, because the first time I met you, yeah. I also loved everything yeah. you're talking about. You're talking about huge things here. Yeah. Do you ever get o- overwhelmed with the... No, well, I, I think, I, I, I look, I, I don't know if I'm talking about huge things. I'm talking about things that every citizen feels in their heart. I'm talking about the car mechanic that I grew up with who was the father of uh, somebody or the bricklayer or the person who worked at the Kennecott uh, uh, mine. I'm talking about the common sense uh, things uh, about what representative government is supposed to be. Um, I don't think I'm talking about something exceptional. I'm talking about things which are what average people expect or should expect from their elected uh, officials. Um, look, I have, I, I'm the luckiest person on the earth. I, I, I have a job that I absolutely love. There's nothing boring about it, uh, but it is work. And I don't think, uh, I don't, and this goes back to my earlier comment about guarding the podium. Um, you know, I, I've had the privilege of now, um, you know, I, I've been running for office in a uh, capacity since 2006. I have watched many policymakers and many would-be politicians and many elected officials on the campaign trail. And they all get up there to our citizens and they tell them why they want to get elected. And it's fascinating for me that once they get elected, how quickly they abdicate that responsibility. And, and, and there's a certain dishonesty there. 
And I think what are uh, these ideas that I'm talking about, if I go down to Kearns or Magna or, 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 or to Harriman or wherever, uh, 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 or Sandy, uh, if you sit down and have this conversation in an open and honest way, um, the things that I'm talking about are the things that they're concerned about. Uh, you know, um, it's about... Uh, the you know look I'm a I'm a fiscal uh, you know I'm a fiscal conservative, uh, it's not my money it's your money, uh, I get the privilege to uh, to head this office, uh, and I'm accountable to every citizen about how we spend that money and we spend it in a good way, uh, I, I'm I'm fiscally conservative I'm socially responsible in the sense that social justice issues matter because these are issues we can spend the money look if you give me a, a, a county jail with 3,000 jail beds, I can fill it. If you give me a county jail with 5,000 jail beds, I can fill it. When do you want me to stop filling that jail bed and, and what kind of a society do we want, right? And then, then, then what is the institutional response, right? Justice, fairness, equality, and truth are not, like I said, mere words. These are ideals that are embedded in our constitutional framework. This is how we define our the very best in ourselves as a nation. And so... These ideas, to me, are commonsensical ideas. At least they are to me. I, oh, no. uh, you I know, agree and, 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 I mean, so, so, so I, you know, I don't, look, uh, it, it, are the days long? Yes. Uh, are they demanding? Absolutely. Uh, can, is there a, a point of exhaustion that you feel because you're gone seven days in a row because you've got things to do and, there, and fires to put out? Absolutely. You know, I once said to a, a group of young attorneys, on the very worst day, this is still the best job. And I still believe that. I love that. Yeah. And that's a long time to believe that. Yeah. And it's a privilege. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to do that, you know. And, uh, and I think our politicians have forgotten that. You know what I, and I sometimes, used to, I used to talk to Jim Winder when he was the sheriff, and I used to tell him that we have a very interesting job. Because, and I know that some of my colleagues are going to probably get angry at me for saying this, but the sheriff and the DA, we became, we sought political office as an accident to our profession, right? I was a prosecutor who ran for elected office as the DA. Um, the sheriff is a cop who ran to be elected as a sheriff. Um, and there are very few institutions where your full-time profession is really what the elected office is. In other elected office, they're not, you know, they're running because that's got nothing to do with their job. And, 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 uh, and while, the, uh, while those are important, the mayor is an important job and the council person is an important job. But they're not existentially tied to the reality of what we do, right? Look, uh, yesterday I, I spent two hours uh, with a mother, a daughter, and a son, and uh, whose son was killed in an officer-involved shooting. And, uh, and, and we spent two hours talking to her, and I had a mother sitting in the chair that you're sitting in there relate to me uh, what it was like for her to witness the death of her child. And, uh, and when you hear that, and when you experience that, when that's shared with you, this is not academic. Uh, this is, this, the work that we do is in an existential way touching and sometimes altering 
the lives of the people who interact with our institutions. If you're a parent of a child who's been sexually abused, it changes you forever, including the child. And, and, and you try to find them a measure of justice. Uh, you find, you help them make sense of our process. And, and sometimes you have to console them after a good try that you don't win a conviction. Uh, and uh, those are very real things. The people who are cycling through with mental illness and drug addictions, their families and extended families are impacted by the decisions that we make. If I set the bail too high and, I'm, and I misuse the authority of my office, uh, I'm, I'm contributing in a fundamental way. If when I prosecute and convict somebody uh, and label them as a felon, uh, I am altering the trajectory uh, of the potential of that family's life. So these issues are not academics as sometimes as they are to other policymakers and other politicians. They have the luxury of uh, speaking in theoretical senses because they're removed from that existential urgency. Uh, our office is defined by that existential urgency. And so in a sense, um, When you get tired, you can't give yourself permission to feel sorry about it because the people who you're trying to help have far greater crisis than you. That's a great answer. And that also just is evidence of how much you care about the work you do and the importance of it. I love my work. I love my work, and I'm lucky to be surrounded by colleagues and professionals who care about this work as well. Uh, and, uh, and there are people who have made a conscious choice to not be in the private sector and to be public servants and to engage in public institutions because they believe in the heart of their hearts that they want to make a difference, a substantive contribution to the betterment of our community. Uh, you know, I've said always before, I believe in the inherent goodness of people and I believe in the inherent goodness of public institutions to make a positive change in our community. You know, my notion of government comes from Abraham Lincoln who said the proper role of government is to do for the individual what they could not do in their individual capacity. Capacity. And so, so I am not, you know, uh, I don't, you know, I, I have a very pragmatic approach to government, uh, uh, which is, which is uh, we're here to serve our community. And our function as government is, doesn't happen in a vacuum. One of the privileges being in America is that it happens within a constitutional framework where the dignity and respect of every human agency has value, uh, where we as a government are obligated to recognize uh, their primacy over the secondary construct of our public institutions. And so I have people in my office who are there to serve that community. They're there to help them uh, create a better community. And so there's a lot of people around the country who think that government is, you know, going in a handbag and a hell, you know, to hell in a handbasket and who have a very cynical view about it. And, and, and what I would say to them is that you 
have a role as a citizen in this country. Citizenship requires involvement. Uh, it is not an, a, a sport of apathy. You have to own your democracy. You have to get engaged, and local politics matter. I may never meet the president of the United States. I may never even meet my uh, United States senators or, or whatnot. But I will meet my sheriff. I will meet my mayor. I'll meet my DA, and uh, many. Uh, and, and that really is where the social contract of, of why, why we believe in the system that we do is delivered. It's delivered at the local level. And you have men and women in this office and in many public institutions who genuinely believe in a non-cynical way that what they are doing and why they want to do is to deliver that measure of justice, of good government to average folks. And that is our best value, and that's our hidden talent that we have in our public institutions. The challenge is not those individuals. The challenge is the policymakers. Um, you, you know, the policymakers who lose that passion, lose that commitment. Um, so the work that we do in this office on a daily basis uh, is fascinating. You know, my days, my day starts in the morning. Uh, I know what my first uh, appointment is, and there's about eight people who have access to my calendar. And any one of them can go into my calendar and alter what my next appointment will be. The only caveat that I ask of them is that uh, um, uh, make sure that what, uh, you give me travel time from my last appointment to the next appointment. And I share that with you because I don't know often what my day is going to be like. And that's really what makes it exciting, right? That's where my energy comes from. My energy comes from the diversity of issues that present themselves and the privilege that I have. Uh, look, every Friday I have what are called Citizens Day. Any citizen can come down and ask for an appointment with our office because we want to make our institution accessible to them. Because this is their office, it's not mine. I'm a temporary caretaker. And if they want to come into this office, which are on my Citizens Day, and I've been doing this for 18 years, they can come in there and I tell them, if you want to come up here and just tell me and yell at me and tell me what an ass I am, that's perfectly fine. That is your right and it's my privilege to listen. And, uh, and, and, uh, and, and it has been really fantastic because it allows people to take ownership of this institution, know that their vote matters, and that they, their public servants are held accountable. And uh, no, I'm not too busy to not listen to you. What you say doesn't matter. And I tell them, we may not agree. This is not about, access is not consensus, right? Access, you have the privilege. We may have a difference of opinions, but you should never feel that this public institution is not accessible to you, that you can't walk in. And I've had people who'll come up and say, I just want to know how you're spending your money, you know, or I want to know, uh, and we'll talk about whatever they want to talk about. Uh, uh, they want to complain about government, they want to complain about me, or they want to, or because, or many times I get people who feel like there, there's been an injustice. And what's fascinating for me, I've been doing this for 18 years, what is fascinating for me is that so many people just want to be heard. So many people just want to be seen. So many people just want you to interact with them on a human level. And these are not things that are demanding on us as public servants. 
And, uh, and so how lucky am I? I get to live in this world and in this privilege of interaction. And, uh, and we get to have conversations about the truth and nature of our government and our moral and ethical responsibility as public servants. And sometimes uh, on some very weighty and meaty issues. Um, I, don't think, uh, I don't think there's another luckier person than I am. A lot of people have asked you why you don't run for higher offices. Yeah. Um, I know your answer to this, but I really <laughs> like your answer. Would you share with me why? Sure. Uh, you know, um, look, um, I guess I'm a little bit different from other policymakers because I was a prosecutor before I got elected as the DA. And I think that far too often people seek public office as a means to another end. You go, you go, you run for this office so you can run for this office. Then you run for this office so you can run for another office. And your end game is some other place out there. And, and, and you give your little bit and you move on. But then there are institutions like the Salt Lake County DA's office, a prosecutor's office. And I ran for this uh, uh, office because I came here to make a generational change. I came here to change the paradigm of what a public institution is. And, and, I, and, and as I've said, and, 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 you know, and people have asked me, they've asked me to run for Congress, they've asked me to run for mayor, they've asked me to run for attorney general, and I'm, and I'm, I'm flattered by that. You know, I've always been fascinated wh- uh, how other people have greater a- ambitions for me than I do for myself. But I think there's no shame in wanting to come down and making a long-term paradigm shift in a particular institution. And it's an investment in time. It takes effort. And, and, you know, the challenge with the office like the DA's office is somebody comes in and they do a reset because they got elected and they do a reset on the previous uh, DA. And then somebody else comes in and they do the reset of the reset and, and we keep changing that way. If we're going to have long-term criminal justice reform, I think you have to stay at a place, get good at that work, and then really make a commitment over a, sometimes over a lifetime, to do the service and the hard work to change the institution so you can actually make a difference in your uh, community. And, uh, and so for me, uh, I came here to make a change. And I've told my colleagues, I will not stay here one day longer than, than the, uh, when I think the job is done. And, uh, and, uh, and w- it is not easy to change a culture. It is not easy to change a system as large as the criminal justice system that is, uh, that is embedded in a way of doing things and does not want to uh, 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 absorb change, if you will. So what we have to do is we have to, we not only have to change the mechanics of this criminal justice system, but we have to change the attitudes of the people who are in it uh, on the execution of those mechanics. And that means that we have to bring in the next generation of attorneys and we have to nurture them and cultivate them and we have to change the paradigm of those ideals where those ideals are a service-driven model than a ego-driven model. Uh, and uh, and so, so, so for me... Uh, you know, uh, I, I have work to do, and uh, and we have a lot of work that we want to accomplish. And uh, I promise you, I will not be here one day longer than is necessary. But at the same time, I don't want to 
haphazardly invest only a portion of the time and I hope for the best. I came here to make a long-term permanent contribution and a change to our system and I'm going to stay here in this one particular job uh, till I feel like we've achieved that objective. I love that. I really do. I don't, I've, I've really never heard, and I know you are technically yeah. a politician, yeah. but you're so different and you speak so differently than any other politician I've ever listened to. And it's so, so nice. Yeah, well, you're very kind. <laughs> I'm uh, just honest. Yeah, you're very kind. Um, and I don't know, you know, uh, I mean, Paige, I don't know. And you tell me, I mean, you know, first of all, thank you for letting me drone on and talk oh. about a lot of stuff here. But, but, but you, you've been following national politics. I mean, uh, you look at the state of our government, you look at the distrust that our people feel. Where is that coming from? Where do you think it's coming from? Well, it starts where we were talking about earlier. I mean, it starts here on the streets. Yeah. It's, I agree with you that there needs to be a change in local government that then stems up, but right. it kind of scares me the way where the world is at right now and the fact that, at least from what I can see, I don't feel like a lot of the world and a lot of the politicians in the world operate in the same way that you do, with the same sort of candor and the same sort of... Um, genuine desire to make a huge difference. You know, I think we have a tendency to get siloed in our existence, uh, both emotionally and psychologically and politically. And uh, and the, the first premise of truth that I start from, which I believe in, is that we're interconnected, right? Uh, so even though I'm a public prosecutor, I'm interested in low-income and transitional housing because that's where people are going to come for reentry. Uh, I'm a prosecutor, but I'm interested in full Medicaid expansion at 138% of the poverty level because 60 to 65% of the people that I, at any time at the county jail, uh, will not have access to treatment or, or, or public health if they don't have access to that, right? As a prosecutor, the single biggest impact that you can have on recidivism is that you can educate somebody and actually have them graduate from high school, uh, you know, and, and that will impact both their physical health. So all of these policy issues to me are interconnected. Uh, and, uh, and I think that uh, I think we have to sort of recognize that interconnectedness, right? Uh, I don't exist in a silo by myself. I have as much interest in what the county mayor or the city mayor is doing or not doing. I have as much interest in the legislature, what they're doing and not doing. And ultimately, ultimately, all of us uh, have a responsibility to serve our citizens. And our citizens have a responsibility uh, to get engaged politically and own their democracy and own their institutions uh, and to assert themselves in a way that they can be uh, uh, heard. Uh, look, one of the most difficult things that I deal with on a regular basis, which is not only an issue locally but also nationally, is officer-involved shootings. Uh, and uh, there is an incredible disconnect of distrust that happens between communities and their institutions of power. And we've, we've talked about it. Uh, uh, I love and respect my law enforcement community. They do difficult work and they do, many of them do their job with honor and distinction. And at the same time, that 
title, that position, does not mean that that's the king's, king's ex to any inquiry or accountability to our citizens, right? Our citizens have a role to play as well. And sometimes all we can do is go back to first principles. And I sometimes I say, my job is to figure out how to find that unvarnished truth, as imperfect as it may be, and to present it in an open and transparent way to my community. They may not be happy with what I have to present. They may be angry, and sometimes they're angry at me. But what we're doing differently is that we're sharing that truth with them. And when that process, they have to own that responsibility. So politics which everybody runs away from. And I don't run away from politics in the sense that we're political creatures as human beings because we live in a representative uh, society. I don't think we can. We need to politicize our duty because our profession and uh, has a duty to it. But our community needs to also own their politics. They need to get engaged politically. Uh, we have the kind of institutions and politics that we do because... We have been led to believe by those in power that our votes don't matter, our voices don't matter, our presence doesn't matter, and if you show up, it won't make a difference. Um, I can tell you that it makes a hell of a difference at a local level, and people need to be empowered to do that. And uh, and, and and where our national government is going, and, and we're facing some big challenges, right? Envir uh, environmental issues, climate change, mass incarceration, poverty, uh, mounting school debt, um, uh, reproductive uh, uh, rights of women. Uh, uh, we are straying further and further away from the ideal that co a constitutional framework of government represents. And, and those principles that empower our citizens are being eroded away and, and our citizens are being told that those rights don't matter to them anymore. And really what our public institutions can do is to every public institution, whether it's the DA's office or the mayor's office or, uh, or the city council, should be constantly thinking about how do we empower our citizens. And if we, if we want a better democracy, uh, we want a more responsible democracy, then it comes to empowering our citizens. And, and, and that really, to me, is what connects us all at the end. Um, I'm the product of an elected office. And, uh, you know, the analogy that I use is every four years, somebody's going to give me uh, uh, four years of oxygen. And I don't know at the end of that, well, when I use up my oxygen, where I'm going to get a fresh tank or not. And if you approach it that way, then there's an urgency in what you do. There's a weightiness to what you do. There's an existential finality to what you do because you may not get this opportunity again. And, uh, and I think that uh, that really is the way we need to approach it. And, uh, and we've got to have some bigger conversations um, about our national politics and our local politics because... This divisiveness that we, divisiveness that we have um, is going to undo all the work that everybody who came before us, right? Uh, um, you know, we started our conversation with me talking about I, I came from a third world country, and I shared with you what my vision of America was. Uh, I, I still believe that the remnants of that vision are still there, but I think 
I'm afraid that we might be altering what that totality of that vision is going to be for the next generation of immigrants who are coming there. Whether they still see us with the sort of moral authority that we used to share with the world, the ethical uh, foothold and uh, pinnacle from which we spoke, the opportunity and the equality, the process, the fairness and justice that was the beckoning call uh, to all those communities that felt that injustice, whether they're going to see America in the same vision. And that's the biggest disservice we can do, is that for that next generation of hopeful immigrants and for the world, that we're going to alter their vision of what it means to come to America and what we stand for. I was, again, with the uh, gentleman I interviewed before who um, who was from Iraq. He talked about his first couple months in America with his family and how initially, before he got in touch with, uh, he's a military veteran, and before he'd gotten in touch with several American soldiers that he had served with, he wanted to go back home because it was so awful for him and yeah. his experience yeah. and the way his family was being treated yeah. um, and things like that. And yeah. then once he actually ended up moving out to Utah where these friends were, yeah. he started to have that sense of family and started to remember that American dream and remember what he had once thought was this you know, yeah. promised land, if you yeah. will. He saw how possible that all was. Yeah. But it's, I don't know. It's never, I guess, a linear path to get there. I just wish it no. was an easier path to get there because I don't think it... I mean, just because we're different colors, yeah. we're both human. We both yeah. have blood throwing, yeah. flowing through our yeah. veins. I mean, it's... So so I think, you know, the, the, the thing is what binds all of us together is that hopefulness, that eternal optimism that is reflective in this ideal of this nation, right? Um, He has a sense of justice. He has a sense of fairness. He has a sense of equality that he wants to achieve. He has a contrast to the truth of this country compared to the truth of his other ones. And uh, and America has never been an easy path. Uh, You know, that's why I get upset at politicians who somehow think that these individuals who are coming here uh, whether it, whether it's the uh, the new generation of arriving immigrants or those individuals who might be DACA children and who are here to serve, that somehow they are just here eating bonbons and just robbing uh, the richness of America away from it. These men and women and children are coming here uh, to escape from uh, tyranny, from violence, uh, from... Uh, dehumanizing governments, and then they're engaging in and working and doing jobs that nobody else wants to do, uh, often working multiple jobs and and just to have the privilege to be here. And, uh, and, and it's amazing to me how much people are willing... You know, it's fascinating. If you think about somebody who's willing to walk 2,000 miles, you know, or whatever, uh, from the... Uh, 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 from the slums of El Salvador or Guatemala uh, because of the militant gangs that are going around killing them or their whatever. 
they're willing to endure that because because of the violence that they're fleeing from. And America was always that open arm to the promise of justice that that we welcome that. And 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 I think that uh, we we at the turn of the century, last century. And there were people in our society who believed in a sense of isolationism, that we can isolate ourselves. And there is a nationalistic, isolistic, uh, isolationist kind of a mindset. And I think we just need to be mindful of our history, that uh, there, there is this generation of people who are coming here because of what is great about our country and the promise that it has. And, and they're willing to sacrifice almost anything to be here. And they, can, and they are and have contributed to the success and the richness of this uh, this country, um, the magic formula of America has been its diversity, its open embrace of the world, and we we didn't produce any local talent. We we got talent from the rest of the world, and we gave them all a place to thrive, and that's the part that we keep missing. Our constitutional framework is a framework that gives people the opportunity to be their very best. And we can take people from all nations who can come here. And that is a, that's sort of our magic formula that the rest of the world does not have. So the single biggest error I think we can commit is to become like the rest of the world, uh, be isolationist, uh, be nationalistic, and segregating in that way. And don't get me, don't get me wrong, we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, we have incredible poverty. Uh, we have. Uh, we need to look at uh, uh, our responsibility in the world with climate change. Uh, again, I didn't think I was going to live in a time where somebody was ever going to ever question climate change or the science of climate change. Uh, and it's almost become uh, that we want to kind of dumb ourselves down so we can be like the rest of the world that we historically said we were critical of because they were not respecting the dignity of their own people. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so uh, I find it a deeply fascinating sort of uh, uh, regression in history that we're engaging in. We're better than that. And that's why people like the one you're mentioning, uh, no matter what the hardships are, are willing to come here and sacrifice and do what's necessary because all we've ever wanted as human beings is just an opportunity to be, uh, an opportunity to exist. Uh, I can never guarantee your success, but I can give you the opportunity to succeed or fail. And that's the promise of America. Absolutely. Right? And that subtle difference is the difference between our greatness and another country's failure. And tied within that is the bedrock of our constitutional framework where we, we, we have said that we don't have a monarchy, we don't have an authoritarian government, we don't have dictators, and that uh, when those people or those impulses present themselves, here's the checks and balance to even that, which is this constitutional framework. And I know we're going through some uh, uh, troubling times for ourselves as a nation, but at the end of the day, we will outlast that as long as we have our constitutional framework. And, uh, and our memories are not so short that we can't remember what made us 
unique and special and extraordinary as a people and as a nation. So we will survive this, but we all got to help each other. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> One of the um, uh, women, so I, I volunteer with an organization that trains service dogs yeah. for military veterans, and one of the co-founders of it, I interviewed her as well, and she has a saying of all you can do is change your small corner of the world, yeah. which goes back to what we were talking about before. Every every vote counts, which is literally what goes through my yeah. mind every time I drive through traffic to yeah, get, to, yeah. get yeah. to a poll because it all it all matters and all you can do is try to make a difference. That's well, you it. know, is, is, there was, uh, there's a saying, right? If you want to change the world, change yourself, mm-hmm. right? And uh, there's no other better place to do that than here. Absolutely. Right? Because the rest, there are places in the world that don't want you to be, and they won't let you change yourself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's the secret of America, is that you can be that agent of change if you want to, or not, or not. And that, that's what we have to do. Uh, and, you know, and so I don't know. You know, it's, it's fascinating. You know, it's, uh, that's why, you know, like I said, I may be a public prosecutor, but uh, what I do is nothing political. It's just having a human conversation at the end of the day. Absolutely. Right? It's about respect. It's about dignity. It's about trying to find the truth. It's about a measure of justice to deliver and to see people and to respect them. That's all we can do. Couple more okay, questions, Jen. real okay. quick. Okay. Um, one of them is, if you could instill one trait in the world, what would it be? If I could what now? Instill one trait. Oh, instill one trait in the world. Um, I, I think. Um, I would say it's, I was going to say kindness, but I, I want to change that. It's compassion. Uh, because compassion is a little bit qualitatively different than kindness. Uh, we can be kind in our acts. Compassion really takes a, a mindfulness and intentionality in a way where I have to actually see you. You know, I've said it this way. Um, um, you know, I'll answer it this way. Um, If I could talk to God and ask God for one gift, one experience, this is what I would ask for from God. Give me the opportunity to genuinely see the person in front of me and let me be seen by them in the same way. That, to me, is what we should always strive for. If I could actually see in the full totality of the person who is in front of me and in in that reciprocal interaction be seen by them, that is our challenge as human beings. And the, the, the closer we get to it, that or how far we're from it is a lifetime's journey. So I guess to answer your question, to be seen and to see. That's what I would want the world to be able to do. Because to me, the rest of the truth resides in that moment. 
That's honestly a big reason why I started this podcast in the first place. Right. Because I feel like it is so easy to look at somebody who has lived a different life than you have or is more successful or whatever and to think they're they're so different. Yeah. And they're really not. Like I said before, we're all we're all humans. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember in kindergarten we had to learn this song and one of the phrases always stuck with me of we're all different but the same. Yes. It's true. It is. It is. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. My final question is, um, what piece of advice has impacted you most in life? That's a great question. I'm going to have to think about that for a second. Nobody's ever really asked me that. I mean, I've had a lot of influences. What piece of advice? This is a very proud moment for me. You've yeah. been interviewed a lot. Yeah. <laughs> what piece of advice has impacted me most. I don't know if it's a piece of advice, but it was a witnessing. I guess that's the best way I can address it. Several years ago, I had the privilege to give the go-ahead to issue marriage licenses for the uh, same-sex marriage, LGBTQ community, um, when that issue was going on. And what I witnessed, because we, that happened on a Friday afternoon, the, you know, the story of that is we were in litigation that happened on Friday afternoon, that order came down, there was no stay order, so we said we're going to start issuing licenses. And that happened on a Friday. That was around 2, 2.15 in the afternoon. It was the weekend before Christmas. And, and we didn't know if a stay order was going to come in, but that was the law, and I was, was going to follow the law, and we were going to start issuing licenses, and we did. And 5 o'clock came, and then the weekend went, and then we went to what I call Magical Monday. And, and since the stay order hadn't come in, there was this long lines of people who lined up to get in to to uh, to get their marriage licenses, and I was at the, uh, the government center, and it serpentined down from the hallways down the stairs to the next floor, and it went down, and people were coming out, and uh, so it wasn't a piece of advice that somebody gave me, but it was something that I witnessed, and what I witnessed was was that love is the most essential component of our being. We can, act, we, we, we can become academic, we can do whatever we want, and it is as fundamental as the first breath that we take, and there is the bonding between a child and the mother, and there is fascinating thing what's happening as a newborn. Your brain and your chemicals that are being released are actually helping you bond. And that notion of being connected, that notion of actually being loved by someone and loving someone is such an amazing, important thing in our life. And so, you know, we say love is love. And, uh, and that was that witnessing that I got to see uh, of how it changed 
people's lives. The ability to love someone, to acknowledge your marriage, and have them acknowledge it. And and it's really hard for people, for mo- most people to fully conceptually understand what I'm trying to communicate here. Because majority of us have never thought about marriage because that's, some, that's a privilege that we have. Until you witness the full weight of it with somebody who has been denied that privilege and then they actually get it, it is something incredible and magical. And it is the most fundamental bond that we have as human beings, right? So... You know, I guess it's the Beatles, right? All there is is love, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so I think that's it. That's the, that's the most important thing that I've ever gotten. And for me, between compassion and love, if you f- look on those two elements, and then I don't know how you cannot see the dignity of the person in front of you. So those are the most important things in my life. I could not agree more. And I really can't thank you enough for doing this. It's my pleasure. It, thank you for the opportunity. It was an honor. Yeah, no, I loved it. That was wonderful. I appreciate it. And uh, I hope I hope your folks enjoy it. So. <laughs> Me too. Well, if they don't, I certainly did. <laughs> okay, all right.